Galatians chapter 1. As we said earlier, this Sunday is Reformation Sunday. It's a week that we set aside to remember uh, specifically that watershed moment that began the Reformation of God's church. There had been... um, different individuals, different books that had been written that, was, that uh, in small ways were, were, were calling for this change that needed to take place in the church at that time. And yet it was on October 31st in the year 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, Germany, calling for a debate specifically on the issue of indulgences. Now you may wonder, what in the world was the problem with indulgences? What was the issue that they needed to debate, uh, of which there were 95 things to debate? Well, ultimately, it came down to the gospel itself. You see, there was um, many people who knew of the great moral corruption that was taking place in the church at that time. And many people assumed, wrongly, that when Martin Luther began writing about reform in the church, that what he was simply talking about uh, were the things that other writers were talking about, about the moral corruption that was going on. But what became evident fairly quickly was that Luther was talking about something far more foundational. It was not just the evident sins of the church, but rather what he believed was the root of those sins, and that is a loss of the gospel itself. And today you will find all kinds of people who don't even know about the Reformation or they misunderstand what it is about, thinking it's just one more split among God's people. But in the end, what you need to understand is that the Reformation was not about authority or politics. It was about the gospel. It was about recovering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because over time, the Roman Catholic Church at that time had allowed the gospel to become encrusted with the barnacles of religious duty and dogma, which more or less meant that people were not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Instead, faith in Christ was to be accompanied by our own good works that caused us to be made righteous. And this was the issue at hand in this debate on indulgences that Luther called for. Essentially, if you sinned, instead of confessing your sin, you were to do penance in the church at that time. You were told, because of this sin, you must now go and you must uh, give so much money to the church, or you must pray so many times, you must go perform some good work to make up for your sin. And because of the desire to finish building St. Peter's Cathedral, a special indulgence had been issued that more or less said uh, that when you bought this indulgence, either your soul on the last day or the souls of your loved ones at the current time would ascend immediately from purgatory into heaven. And what Luther saw was there very much a corruption of the gospel itself. That the the good news of Jesus Christ was not that we pay somebody for our salvation. That we do something to be made righteous by God. But rather, God himself has provided the righteousness we need in Christ. So that by faith alone, in Christ alone, we receive salvation from God. And yet Luther did not always know that or believe that. Luther himself struggled with his own sin and wanting to be made right with God. And it was only when he discovered the beauty of what he referred to as the pure gospel, both in the scriptures themselves as well as in the writings of the early church fathers, that he himself was converted. 
And it was from this conversion that he tried to call the church back to its beginning. More than anything, Luther and the other reformers wanted to see the church get the gospel right. That is to make sure the gospel was not added to, detracted from, or distorted in any way. For to do so would actually leave us with no gospel at all. And more than any other book in the Bible, Luther loved Paul's letter to the Galatians for this very reason. His wife, Katie Von Bora, was her name, and he used to refer to the letter of Galatians as his Katie. That is to say that his spiritual journey in life was intimately wed to the truths of the book of Galatians, where Paul, though in different circumstances and with a different emphasis, is nevertheless still proclaiming the very message that Luther found himself proclaiming, and that is guard and maintain the purity of the gospel, that no work can be added to uh, what we do and what we believe in order to see us be saved. And so it's a great providence this morning that we find ourselves in the book of Galatians in the larger sermon series that we have been doing. If you're visiting with us, what we have been doing is going through book by book in chronological order, seeking to look at the big story that God has been writing and even is now writing uh, today. And what we have done is taken one, one sermon to look at each book of the Bible and we have come to the second letter to be written to the New Testament church. That is Paul's first letter, the, the, letter of, the letter to the Galatians. And that is what we want to look at this morning. We want to see how Paul is writing to the Galatian Christians, telling them we must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. In order to see uh, really the message of this book, we want to look at chapter 1. And I would encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of His Word. One of the things that you will find if you ever take a course or a class or read some book on how to interpret the Bible is that particularly when you look to the letters written in the New Testament, if you want to know what the book is about, if you want to know what its central themes are, you should just read the opening verses, the opening paragraph or two, because there usually the author will lay out, here is what this letter is going to be about, here is the, the central theme that's going to hold it together. And that is never more true than in the letter to the Galatians. Here Paul breaks from his normal habit that we will see in the coming weeks of first saying, here are the things I am thankful for about you, or here are the things that I appreciate about you, and now let me give you this instruction. 
In other words, he, he is encouraging first, and then he brings the correction. But here he doesn't do that. Instead, he just launches in and says, I am, I am amazed and astonished that you are not living the way I left you. Specifically, that they, had, they are in the process of abandoning the very gospel, the foundational message that they heard. From these verses and from thinking about the gospel itself, I think there are three directives that emerge, uh, not just to the Galatians, but also to us today. So how do we go? I've entitled the message, Getting the Gospel Right. How do we get the gospel right is the question for us this morning. And I think there are three things that we should do. First, we must know the gospel. We must know the gospel. Paul opens his letter by giving us, in summary and form, the gospel itself. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I think three specific parts of the gospel emerge from this summary. The first is this, that Christ died for sins. Christ died for sins. This is really at the very heart of the gospel itself. Specifically, Paul says, Christ gave himself for our sins. That's the essence of the work of the cross. It was a substitutionary death. It is to say, Christ stood in the place of his people and died for their sins. The question we should ask, though, is why did he do this? And later, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, Paul explains that Christ redeemed us, his people, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is to say, he bore the curse that we bring upon ourselves by failing to keep God's law, by failing to live in right relationship with him. Instead of loving him and worshiping as our God, by practicing idolatry and loving and worshiping other things, that brings upon us a curse from God. And that curse is due only one thing, and that is an eternity in hell. And yet on the cross... On the cross, Christ stood in our place. He hung in our place and he became a curse for us. The result is that through Christ's death for his people, they are delivered from evil. This is the second thing that Paul tells us, that Christ died to deliver. Christ died to deliver. Specifically, he says, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This is the intent of Christ's death on the cross for sins. It's a delivery. It's a rescue. Someone has said that Christianity is very much a rescue religion. That is to say, it is all about the, the rescue, the delivery from death to life of people who would believe. This idea of delivery or rescue or redemption isn't anything new. It's not like Paul is coming up with something on his own. This is, this is the strand that runs through very, all of the scriptures, even from the very beginning. You can go especially to the Old Testament and read through the book of Exodus and see where this idea of redemption is key. You'll remember there that God's people were enslaved in Egypt, held captive to Pharaoh, and yet God sought to redeem them from their captivity. And he did so by bringing a series of plagues upon the people of Egypt. And he told the Israelites that if you, will be sa- if you want to be saved from the final plague, the final pl- plague of death and destruction of the firstborn in every house, then you are to offer a lamb of sacrifice. And you are to, in faith, spread its blood across your doorposts, believing 
that, that I will pass by you and I will bring redemption for you. And in fact, that is the very thing that happened. Those that by faith put the blood on their door were delivered from the judgment that came upon all of Egypt. And in the same way, Paul will later say that Christ is our Passover lamb. That is to say, he is not just the fulfillment of those sacrifices that were offered on that day, but rather he is the one who brings our redemption from slavery. Not to people, but to sin, to hell, and to death itself. He brings us deliverance from the sin which characterizes this evil age. Christ died for sins. He died for sins to deliver His people. And He did all of this, Paul tells us, according to God's will. This is the third thing that we see, that Christ died according to God's will. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul explains how Christ stands at the center of God's plan for the redemption of sinners, not the law. It is not the law of God that stands at the center, but rather it is Christ who stands at the center. The law served its purpose, but now its purpose has come to an end in Christ. So in chapter 3, Paul says this, The law was our guardian, that is our babysitter, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Later in chapter 4 he says, When the fullness of time had come, that is to say, when the determined, the planned time that God had set, when that had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the cross wasn't an accident. Jesus is not just some martyr who got caught up and was killed, and boy, isn't it such a shame. The cross is not plan B. It is in fact the very will of God that Christ joyfully took up and fulfilled so that sinners might be saved. And the question is, in light of this reality, this message of the good news, what are sinners supposed to do? If Christ died on the cross in our place bearing God's wrath against us, He did this so that that we would be delivered from sin that characterized this evil age, and that all this happened according to the will of God, what then are we to do? Well, the thing that we must not ever think that we should do is say, well, because Christ did that, I must live a good life. Now, that seems like what we should think, right? God loves me, so I should live the way God wants to. And there's a, there's a sense in which, yes, you should do that, but first... But first, before there is any thought of living a good life, we must receive what Christ has done. We must turn away from our sin and believe that this news that we have heard about Jesus' death for us is true. We must trust Him to be the Savior who brings us to Christ. And it is not that we believe and then do good works that God will love us. No. You remember, Paul said that we are justified by faith because of Christ's death for us. What that, mean, what that word justification means is simply that we are declared righteous before God by faith. So what that means is that it is not that we trust God to save us and then we help it along by doing good things so He will love us and say, yeah, you're good enough to get in. No. No, the whole point that Paul is making is to say... We are saved by faith alone because of the work that Christ Himself did. All of this is seen in the life story of Luther himself. You may or may not know that he was a monk. 
and part of his uh, monkish orders uh, it not only involved knowing the scriptures but confessing confessing his sins uh, once a day and a lot of times I mean you know people would come in and I mean you know who knows what they would confess but at one point Luther was in the confessional booth for six hours you're thinking he's a monk what kind of trouble could he get into at the monastery right they don't even have cable television there well, and, and, and in fact, people, you know, uh, Stalpitz, his kind of mentor said, go back when you've actually committed a real sin like adultery or idolatry. I don't want to hear about all these little things. But what Luther was gripped by was the immense sense of the holiness of God and his inability to be holy as he was taught he needed to be to be right with God. He was taught, yes, you trust in Christ but then you do these good things so that grace is infused to you and God actually makes you righteous before Him. And the problem was, the more he tried to be good, the more he tried to confess what he did was wrong, the more he realized just how totally corrupt his sinful heart was. And he despaired. He came to a point of actually being angry and hateful towards God and thinking, how in the world, how in the world can anyone ever be made right with him? How can, how can I ever live up to the standard of righteousness that he wants? And it was then that his mentor said, you know what, you seem really troubled. We're going to send you off to study theology. And Luther was like, what are you talking about? I, I'm at the breaking point here. I'm about ready to, 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 to give up my faith and you want me to go study theology? And he said, yeah, it'll be good for you. And it was. Because rather than looking at words like Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here, which the Catholic Church had translated, do penance for the kingdom of God is here, Luther was able to go back to the Greek and to the Hebrew and to the original and he was able to see the pure word of God and the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And he came to realize that it is not by his working through faith by which he is saved, but rather it was by the righteousness of Christ that God counts as his when he trusts Jesus to be his Savior. That was the freeing moment for Luther when he realized it is impossible to live up to the standard of God's holiness. And yet God in love and grace provides the very righteousness that we need to be right with him. And then all of our good works simply flow flow from a heart of love and thankfulness for the God who has saved us by His grace. Thus Luther said of these opening words in the letter of the Galatians, these words are like thunderclaps from heaven against all righteousness. In other words, you cannot read through this letter, you cannot read even these opening words and think somehow it is my righteousness that is required for salvation, but rather it is what God has done and what God has done alone through His Son, Jesus Christ, by which we are saved. Self-righteousness then becomes the enemy of the gospel and a hindrance to salvation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection for sinners to be acquired not by our works, but by our faith. Now what do we do with it? What do we do with that message of the gospel? Paul, I think, gives us two things that we should do. One explicit and one implicit that we will look at. The first thing is this. This is our second point. The first implication of what we should do with the gospel, that is simply this. We should guard the gospel. Number two, we should guard the gospel. If you were to read Acts chapters 13 and 14, you would read of Paul's first missionary journey. And it is on that journey 
that the gospel first comes to the church at Galatia. It's where it comes to that region of Galatia and the church is built up as people are saved. In fact, God blessed that first missionary journey uh, probably more than many missionary journeys ever in the, in the history of the church. And part of that is what part of that that's part of the reason why it makes all the more shocking for Paul what he has now heard about uh, the Galatian church is doing. He writes in verse 6, "I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel." You see, the Galatians had heard the truth of Jesus Christ, but now they were leaving that truth of the gospel. And as we seek to understand why they were leaving the truth, we will also learn how we must guard the truth. So the first thing that we must do is guard against distortion. We must guard against distortion. Listen again to what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly discerning him who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here was the cause of the trouble in Galatia. False teachers had followed after Paul and were troubling the Christians there. Specifically, these were the people that we call the Judaizers because they were people who are Jewish by ethnicity. They had placed faith in Christ and yet they still kept the Old Testament law. What's more though, they told Gentiles who had placed their faith in Christ in order to be saved... Yes, you must trust in Christ, but now you must also keep the law. Yes, trust in Christ, and then you do your part. You be a good Christian by keeping the law of Moses. So their gospel was not faith in Christ plus nothing. It was faith in Christ plus obedience to the law. And Paul says, that's a different gospel. That's a different gospel. More than that, he says, it's not even a real gospel. The word gospel means good news. And I'm sure in Paul's mind, he's thinking, how is that good news? How is it good news to say, yeah, trust in Christ, but then you're going to do all this extra stuff? That's not good news. That puts you in the same boat as Luther, going insane, saying, how can I earn it? How can I ever be good enough? Paul says, this is not a real gospel. This is not the gospel that I preach to you. That salvation comes by faith in Christ and nothing else. His work is a finished work sufficient for salvation he says don't listen to anybody who would tell you anything different he says not even me he says even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed paul says if i ever come back and i sound out of my mind and i'm telling you here's the gospel of jesus christ and it's not what i first told you he says ignore me run me out of town he says if something claiming to be an angel take note mormons if something claiming to be an angel comes and tells you this is the gospel and it doesn't match up to what I've said, reject it because it's not true. There is no other gospels. There's only the one that I preach to you. In fact, Paul uses very strong language here. He says, if anyone comes preaching another gospel, let them be considered accursed. This is the word anathema that you may have heard of before. It means consider them worthy of the fullness of God's judgment. Put on them. In other words, consider them worthy of hell itself. Think about what Paul is saying there. Think about how serious he says we are to guard and take the gospel. Paul says anyone who would tamper with the gospel is worthy of hell itself. 
And he says, just so you know, I didn't speak out of turn. Just so you know, I didn't get carried away. Let me repeat myself. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is not just a man. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he speaks with the full authority of Christ. So if Paul takes the gospel that seriously, it means Christ himself takes the gospel that seriously. And it means we must take the gospel that seriously. Forever guarding against any distortions that people may try to bring to the gospel. But more than that, we must not only guard against distortion, we must guard against desertion. We must guard against desertion. Paul says the Galatians were quickly deserting him for a different gospel. The word deserting means here, it's a military term, which means exactly what it sounds like. Someone deserting the field of battle, showing themselves to be a traitor or a turncoat. False teachers were the ones responsible for distorting the gospel, but the Galatians were the ones in danger of deserting it. They were the ones in danger of running away from it and embracing a false message. And as we think about the application this morning, frankly, I think this is probably where the weight of it needs to lie. And we ourselves making sure that we are not led astray by a distortion of the gospel. That we ourselves are not deserting the true message in favor of a false message. Particularly, I think, one of the things that we often think about is that the gospel is just not sufficient. You see, Paul will argue throughout the book that the gospel is not just about getting saved. The gospel is about living as a saved person. The gospel is both the encouragement and the means by which we are able to live by faith the the Christian life. And I think very often our biggest point of desertion is saying, yeah, the gospel was good to get me in, but now I'm on my own to live the way God wants me to. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul shows very practically how the gospel makes all the difference in the world for how we live as Christians. So for us, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to struggling with illness, working your job, fighting temptation, facing addiction, the gospel is the power we need for our lives. And we must never desert it in favor of something else that looks more attractive. More than that, together as a church, the gospel must remain the focus of all that we do. We can't let something else take its place as what's driving why we're gathering together and what our ministries are all about. Now, let's think about that for a minute. What distortions or desertions of the gospel are there to tempt us away from the truth? Well, one pastor, Ray Ortland Jr., he offers a couple of high contenders. Here's the question he asks. He says, what would our church look like without the gospel? What would replace the gospel as our central focus? Here's a few of the things he suggests. A passionate devotion to the pro-life cause. A drive towards church growth. A deep concern for the institution of the family. A determination to take America back to its Christian roots through political power. A sympathetic, empathetic, thickly honeyed cultivation of interpersonal relationships. Now what does that sound like? It sounds like a lot of churches today, doesn't it? Oh, they say, yeah, we believe the gospel, but this is what we're really on about. This is what really drives this church and its ministry and its pulpit. And what Ortland is saying, and I think what Paul is saying is, you don't do that. Some of those things are great. Some of them shouldn't even be on our radar. 
but what must always be at the center, not only of the Christian's life, but of the collective Christian's life together as the church must always be the gospel. Another temptation that has been in the past, and I would say is probably going to come again very strongly in the next few years, because even now you're hearing about it, is going to be an emphasis on social justice. Why is that the case? Because, frankly, in the last 20 or 30 years, it's been something pretty weak among churches in this country and in the West in general. We've been neglectful of it. And so it's making a comeback, and we should listen well to to some of those voices. After all, even we saw last week, a concern for the poor and the indigent and the downtrodden is an evidence of true faith. But, but, do not put the proverbial cart before the horse here. Understand that a loving concern for social justice flows out of the proclamation and belief in the gospel. Unfortunately, what we have here are people saying things like this. If there is no social justice, then there is no gospel. Now, what have they done? They've just put social, go- social justice on the same level as the gospel. That's not, that's not what Paul says, is it? That's not what the Bible says. Social justice is not the gospel. Right now, you can even go to the bookstore or go online to Amazon, and you can, you can look up a book called The Whole in Our Gospel. It is written by the man who runs World Vision, which is in theory a Christian organization that is used to, uh, to help uh, people in poverty around the world. And yet in this book, essentially what he says is, we don't even really need to preach Christ. We just need to live out the love of Christ and people will be okay. Our concern should be ending poverty and not taking a stand on on contemporary moral issues like homosexuality and abortion and the inerrancy of the Word of God and the exclusivity of the gospel. That shouldn't be where our focus is. Our focus should be on social justice. Now what has he done there? He's just given away the store. If we lose the gospel, then that's all we are is a charity. And frankly, people can still go to hell well-fed and clothed with clean drinking water. That's the temptation, I guarantee you. That temptation, you will hear it more loudly in the coming years. It's gaining steam. And what we have to remember is this. Yes, yes, we should be concerned for those that are without, considering how much we have, both for one another and for the world. But that flows out of the priority of gospel proclamation. Ultimately, it is the eternal suffering of hell that we want to alleviate more than any other suffering in the world. In every age, there are going to be distortions of the gospel, whether it's doctrinal in nature, attacking the nature and work of Christ. Others of it will be more subtle and will be either adding to the work of Christ or moving the work of Christ out of the priority of the church. And in every age, our calling is to guard the gospel, not desert it and not distort it. God is calling us to dig in, to stand firm, and to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Galatians, he tells them they must know the gospel, they must guard the gospel, and then implicitly, the last thing is, they must must preach the gospel. They must preach the gospel. You know, part of the criticism that the Judaizers was spreading about Paul was that he was really just peddling his own message, his own message of the gospel, and in fact, he would tweak it depending on who he was talking to and what was most popular at the time. 
And to this, Paul responds by affirming that his message was truly from God, and he's doing anything but preaching to please men. He says in verse 10, For, now, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I, were, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I think Paul tells us how we should go about preaching the gospel here. First, we should preach for God. We should preach for God. Again, Paul critics, Paul's critic says that it's just his own message. Well, historically, we know that's just not true. Paul gives his testimony and says it was, in fact, the risen Christ who appeared to him in a blinding light, literally knocked him uh, off his donkey and blinding him, telling him, why are you persecuting my church? What a way to be introduced to Christ, right? Paul was, frankly, unique in that someone did not tell him the gospel and cause him to believe. Christ himself appeared and said, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you. Now stop fighting against me and be my apostle. Well, that would be an experience, wouldn't it? So Paul is saying, look, you know, I, I didn't sit under James. I didn't sit under Peter. Barnabas, Barnabas did not share a tract with me. I heard the gospel directly from God in the flesh, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something I've made up. It is the message that he gave me. And when we look through the rest of the New Testament, what we see is the same gospel that Paul preached, the same gospel the other apostles preached, and historically it's the same gospel that the early Christians preached. What that means is we should make sure that the same gospel they preached is what we're preaching, that we really have the gospel, but then more than that, when we preach it, we remember whose gospel it is. If, if I wrote a book and I gave it to someone and said, will you teach this book for a discipleship class? They said, sure. And so a couple weeks go by, and uh, say it's on a Sunday morning, and I'm uh, uh, going out to do something. So I go out of my office, and I come back, and I hear the guy teaching, and he's saying something completely different, completely the opposite from what I had in the book, but claiming that that's what I taught. How do you think that made me feel? I'd probably walk into class and say, whoa, hold it. What are you doing? If you, want to, if you want to say that's what you believe, that's fine. But that's not what I wrote in that book. Likewise, God says, here is my message. Here is my good news to the world. How do you think God feels if we would change it? And say, well, I don't like that part. Here's what I think it should say. No, that's not why we preach, is it? We don't preach to promote ourselves. We preach a message that God has given us and we preach it for God. That's what Paul's calling was. Because God does not do what, uh, what, what he did with Paul. He does not just appear to people. He uses the preaching of the word to spread the gospel. Therefore, we not only take confidence that we don't have to come up with some new message, we just take what God gave us and preach it. But more than that, we realize we're preaching for him, for his glory, for his honor, for the purity of his message. By implication, then, we should not only preach for God, but we should preach without fear. We should preach without fear. The Judaizers said that Paul only preached what people wanted to hear, that he only preached and the Gentiles didn't need to keep the law when he was with Gentiles. But then he did preach that Christians needed to keep the law when he was with the Jews because he knew the Gentiles didn't want to hear about the law and the Jews did want to hear about the law. And what Paul says is that's simply not true. He says, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And of course, in the next chapter, chapter 2, Paul gives this famous account that most people that are familiar with the Bible know about. It seems these Judaizers had actually gotten to Peter at Antioch. They had convinced him of their position. And so, though at the one time, Peter had been sitting down and eating with Gentiles who were not eating kosher. They were breaking all the food laws and it didn't matter. And he was enjoying fellowship with them. But all these Judaizers come and they're saying, hey, Peter, come back over. And Peter says, uh, no, I want to go eat with these guys over here. They're eating kosher. And Paul says, I withstood him to his face. Now, you can take that a couple of ways. It could mean I didn't send him an email or write him a memo. Or it could mean also, more than that, that I got in his face and said, Peter, what is the matter with you? You said you you believe the gospel. You preach the gospel. But here you clearly show you don't trust the gospel. More than that, though, I think he said, you've allowed yourself to be consumed by fear. You care more about what they think than what you know to be true, that Jesus Christ himself proclaimed. You see, these people that had come and got to Peter, they claimed to be from James at Jerusalem. Who's, we, we saw his letter last week. It was the Lord's brother. They claimed to come with authority. And they said, well, you, you can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be separated from those that are still unclean. You've still got to keep the law. And Peter became fearful of them and of what they might send back to Jerusalem. So he capitulated. He folded he didn't stick with the gospel, but he gave into it and compromised on it. And Paul said, I didn't do that. I withstood even Peter, the first among equals, the, the primus among the apostles, the rock upon which Christ said he would build his church. I withstood him to his face because he compromised the gospel. Paul says, I, I, I don't preach out of fear from anyone. That's not what motivates me. And I think both in word and an example, there's something for us to learn there, isn't it, today? Because people get so offended today. People say, oh, we've got to be tolerant. Well, we're not tolerant as a society. Tolerant means I disagree vehemently with the Muslims in Dearborn, but because this is America, I will fight for their right to build a mosque. It's their right. Religious freedom. That's tolerance. Intolerant says, I don't agree with them, so I want to shut them up. You can't say that in public anymore. And that's what, that's what things have resulted to in this country, isn't it? I don't like what you say, so I want to take you off the air. Liberals want to take the conservatives off the air. And the atheists want to shut up Christians so they can't talk about religious beliefs. And pretty soon they're going to pass a law that says, if you say homosexuality is a sin, it's hate speech, and you're going to get thrown in jail. Why? Because we don't want to hear what you have to say. That's intolerance, not tolerance. Don't be fooled. And yet, it's because of this intolerant attitude that we clam up, isn't it? We get fearful. Well, I don't, I don't know what people are going to think. I don't know what people are going to say. And so therefore, we don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't proclaim it as we should. Instead, we just say, well, I'll just pray for him. I'll just pray for him. Well, friends, praying is not enough. Yeah, you should always accompany the preaching of the gospel with prayer, but that's not enough. You actually have to Proclaim the gospel. Back when I was in college, I think it was Michael W. Smith who put out an album. And one of the songs, it said in the liner notes, uh, yes, I'm one of those uh, geeks, freaks, and nerds who actually reads the liner notes and CDs. Some of you don't even know, do you know what a CD is? Everything is just downloaded from iTunes now, I don't know. But uh, it said, the song was based on a quote from St. Francis of Assisi, 
that said, preach the gospel all the time, and if necessary, use words. And I remember in college, I thought, that's great. That's, that's great. Well, two problems with that. Number one, France, St. Francis never actually said that. And number two, that goes totally against what the Bible says. You have to preach the gospel. Yes, now don't get me wrong, your life should be uh, in keeping with the gospel. In other words, you shouldn't uh, lie, cheat, and steal and then say, oh yeah, Jesus saves. You know, uh, that's not going to fly. Okay, it's not going to work. Nevertheless, you can live as Christ-like a life as you possibly can, but if you don't actually open your mouth and proclaim the gospel, it's not going to do anybody any good. They're going to die and go to hell thinking you're a really nice person. Now, we have that just because Paul specifically says in Romans 10 and elsewhere that the gospel must be proclaimed so that people can hear it and they can believe. But let's just think about by our own experience for a few minutes. How many of you remember when the movie The Passion came out that Mel Gibson did? So many people I was hearing say, it's, it's going to be a worldwide revival. When this movie comes out, it's going to be like anything we've ever seen. And people are saying, we've got to have action plans to know what, what all these hundreds of people are going to be flocking to church, what we're going to do with them, and how we're going to integrate them. And some people say, you should just go to the theater and just show the film and get up and say, who wants to be saved? And people will be flying on the aisle. That didn't happen, did it? Why didn't it happen? I mean, I'm not going to say nothing good came out of that, but I don't know anybody who was saved just by watching that film. When I went to go see it, there was nobody that got saved watching it. And there certainly was no worldwide revival because of that movie. What happened? I mean, you go into the movie and what do you see? See a Jewish man named Jesus working as a carpenter, gets arrested by Jews and Romans, gets beaten, gets strung up as dead, is buried, and you have this fleeting glance of a naked Jesus maybe being raised from the dead. Maybe that's what we're supposed to understand. It was very unclear in the movie. And you had Christians just weeping and wailing and thinking this is amazing. It means so much to me. And you have lots of people going out and saying, huh, that's interesting. That's kind of gory, but interesting. So is that what Christians really think happened? No salvation. Why? Because they saw the events of the gospel, but no one told them what it meant. This is the massive problem with that movie. Not only is it add a bunch of stuff that's just not there, but, but secondly, it just portrays the events and there's no explanation of what is actually taking place. Why is it significant this man was beaten and crucified and dead and was raised again to life? They don't know. And that's why it failed. That's why it failed to bring about a worldwide revival because that wasn't the gospel. That was not the gospel. That was a portrayal of brutality and crucifixion. And that was it. You see, Christians knew the gospel, so they imported their meaning onto the film and thought, wow, this is great. But for the lost person who doesn't know the gospel, they couldn't do that. And it meant nothing to them. Friends, we have to open our mouths and preach the gospel or people will not be saved. They have to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, not one that is tweaked to modern sensibilities, not one that is distorted according to our agenda, but one that has been guarded and is pure and is biblical and is the same gospel that Christ proclaimed and Paul proclaimed and thousands of people across church history have always proclaimed. And that is that faith 
alone brings about salvation. Because Jesus Christ hung on a cross and endured the fullness of God's wrath towards sinners. He stood in the gap, as it were, bearing our sins on His body in the cross. More than that, though, because He died as a perfect sacrifice, because His life was lived perfect before God. When we trust Jesus to be our Savior, God not only considers His death our death, His punishment our punishment, but He also considers His life our life. His righteousness is our righteousness. So all we must do is not try and earn our salvation by giving to the church and praying a lot and doing good deeds. No, we simply trust Jesus died for me. Jesus lived for me. Jesus was raised from the dead for me. And we trust that. We believe it. We bank our lives on it. And God says, then He is for you. And the life that we live afterwards is one of humility and joy and love Serving Christ who gave himself for us. That's the message that we must proclaim. And when we proclaim it, what we will find is the same with us. Lives are changed, sins are forgiven, and the desires of men's souls will find their ultimate satisfaction. We must never change the message of the gospel. We must never shrink away from telling anyone this incredibly good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel and the change that it has brought about in our own lives. Father, we pray that we would not take lightly Paul's words in knowing and guarding and preaching the gospel. Father, may that be the reality of our lives. May the gospel be at its center of all that we believe and do. May it be at the center of all that we believe and do at this church. Father, that is a life-giving message that we heard and that we have been entrusted with to proclaim to the nations. Father, may we be found faithful to that. May we stand in the long line of godly men and women who have even given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Father, it would be our joy and our delight to remain faithful to you. God, help us by your grace. Give us the strength that we need to do so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.